I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, speeding the clearing of vitreous hemorrhage. Historically, we have simply watched and observed. And a significant percentage of uh, vitreous hemorrhages do tend to clear spontaneously. The intervention to date has been exclusively one, surgical vitrectomy. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Cooperman declares consulting fees from ISTA Pharmaceuticals. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to As Seen From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes Users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. Imagine a pathology so malevolent it interferes with its own treatment. A pathology that, while obscuring the patient's vision, obscures its own etiology. I'm talking about vitreous hemorrhage. There are only two therapeutic options, vitrectomy and observation. Today, Barry Cooperman introduces us to a third, highly purified hyaluronidase, an agent about which he's recently published. Barry, what are the current therapeutic options for vitreous hemorrhage? Well, to date, there's really two therapeutic options. And in fact, the way that they're both being managed have changed a bit. Historically, we have simply watched and observed. And a significant percentage of uh, vitreous hemorrhages do tend to clear spontaneously. And that's a bit of the conundrum in the middle of all this is how long do you wait and how soon do you intervene? And both of those depend on the specific condition of the individual. The intervention to date has been exclusively one. Once in it, once You've waited long enough once the observation period, uh, based on whatever characteristics the surgeon chooses to or the retina specialist chooses to follow, based on the patient's underlying condition, then the only therapeutic option that exists at that point is the surgical vitrectomy. And given the transition and trend towards 25-gauge surgical vitrectomy, we have begun to perhaps intervene a little sooner than we have in the past based on the sense that I think is a little bit uh, misconceived of this being somehow less invasive, the 25-gauge vitrectomy, than the 20-gauge vitrectomy. I'm not sure it really is less invasive. I know that it's more rapid and it's uh, less uncomfortable for the patient, uh, the post-operative period. Vitrectomy is still a fairly invasive procedure, and I, I've not necessarily modified my indications uh, based on this tw- transition from 20-gauge to 25-gauge, though I do know that some of my colleagues have. Why is it important to decrease the time it takes for a vitreous hemorrhage to clear? Well, the, the overwhelming majority of vitreous hemorrhages are caused by proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Currently, though, again, this whole field is a little bit, uh, we'll have to circle back around to other pharmacologic agents that are not enzy, uh, you know, enzymatic you know, vitreolytic agents, but the pharmacologic agents that we're using for, for the anti-VEGF compounds, we'd have to discuss that uh, at some point. But to focus again on the... Uh, notion of why do we want to clear the blood earlier, of course, is that the whole purpose of clearing the blood is only so that we can apply a laser that's needed to, to induce uh, regression or involution of the proliferative, the vascularization of the disc, the other vasoproliferative uh, 
components of the, of the diabetic retinopathy. So the earlier that we can get, basically, as one is waiting for the blood to clear, the disease is essentially underlying it. The cause of bleeding is going unchecked. So the sooner that we can intervene, the sooner that we can induce, re, induce regression of the disease and get, regain control of the eye. What are the risks of surgical treatment for vitreous hemorrhage? Well, certainly, we feel that the risk have diminished over time as, we, as modern technology has advanced, the cutting rates have increased, the cutter sizes have decreased, etc. But there's always a risk with any surgical intervention, first of all, of, any, of an anesthetic mishap. There's always a concern, and I always make sure I mention that to my patient. My patients, before we go into surgery, we tend to do this under local anesthetic, but I need to always mention the risk of uh, even local anesthetic in combination with IV sedation. Importantly, there's also risk of retinal detachment, uh, infection, cataract, uh, postoperative glaucoma. Those are the standard uh, types of risks. Those are the standard risks that we discuss with our patients. Um, overall, we feel that uh, the risks are tolerable and we're willing to recommend these surgeries. But the main reason we withhold surgery is not because we feel that surgery is risky. The main reason we withhold surgery for a period of time and the amount of time uh, may depend on the individual surgeon and may depend on the individual patient is that the blood can clear spontaneously. And if it does, does so, then we can achieve the goal of what we really want to do. We don't really care to remove the blood necessarily. We want to be able to, for the blood to be gone somehow so that we can provide the, under, the treatment to the underlying disease, that is the uh, panretinal photocoagulation. How does hyaluronidase work? How, how does it speed clearing blood? Well, part of this is, is well, it's, it's incompletely understood. But the idea is that vitrase, which is actually sodium hyaluronidase, similar in a certain sense to the sodium hyaluronidase that we have used historically as a spreading agent for retrobulbal anesthesia back in the day, Y days. In fact, the current vitrase is, is, has its label indication as a vitrobulbal uh, anesthetic, uh, anesthetic spreading agent. So what it does do is it intervenes with the extracellular cement. So the extracellular matrix is what's interacted with, and it has an effect on collagen uh, breakdown in the vitreous, um, allowing the vitreous, one thing that it absolutely does, even when the vitreous, even when the vitreous hemorrhage is not cleared, what does happen to the vitreous is it becomes markedly more liquid. And that's something that we should discuss as well, because even in a quote-unquote failed case of a uh, injection of vitrays that does not result in clearance of the vitreous hemorrhage. In fact, one can go in surgically and remove the blood much more efficiently. In fact, one barely needs to turn the cutter on, but you can, if you were to leave the cutter off and just touch lightly on the uh, aspiration, um, one would see blood and vitreous, you know, liquid vitreous just streaming to the port in a very liquid motion without creation of any traction at all. Of course, I'm always nervous to do such a thing, so I use the cutter more or less. Uh, but one can, the vitreous becomes very, very liquid uh, um, after uh, injection of sodium hyaluronidase of vitreous. But again, the idea is, is that there is a break, that there's two steps to this. There is a, um, a cellular component where there's a direct effect, uh, you know, on the, uh, basically the collagen matrix is broken down, and there's also, um, there's an inflammatory cells that are elaborated, and in fact, one sees in certain cases a hypopion uh, one to two days after injection of vitreous which is quite alarming. We're busy trying to educate uh, people about the use of vitreous and not to, be, not to assume that that is an endophthalmitis. Uh, of course, that's always the fear one has. You have a hypopion the day or two after injecting an animal protein into the eye, um, and you assume it's endophthalmitis. But in fact, those eyes with hypopion are not hot or inflamed. They just simply have these uh, layered hypopion, which clears spontaneously 
or it can also be, you know, topical steroids are frequently used, but you don't even need to do it. It goes away by itself. The eye is not hot or does not look like an eye with endophthalmitison, in fact. In the entire development of vitres, there's never been one case of injection-related endophthalmitis. There have been a couple of cases six months out after a subsequent surgical procedure of a post-operative endophthalmitis, but zero cases of post-injection ophthalmitis. You know, the inflammation is a key part of this. So there is this uh, component of both breakdown of the collagen, liquefaction of the vitreous, and an inflammatory process that helps the enzymatic degradation and the cellular degradation of, uh, of the vitreous and the blood components, allowing clearance of the blood and a subsequent ability to view the underlying retina. How does vitreous differ from Y-Days? Y-Days, they, they differ in two key components, well, three key components. Uh, Y-Day, uh, let's go back, let's go the other way. Vitreous is from sheep and Y-Days is from cows. I'm not sure that that's important, but that is a difference. Uh, vitreous is uh, highly purified and Y-Days much less so. That being said, both are protein soups. So if you were to look at either vitreous or Y-Days, which are dubbed sodium hyaluronidase, and, fa- and run a gel on them, you would see other uh, factors in there too, which may be important in the degradation of the vitreous. Annexin-2, for example, is a key element of that, as are others, though overwhelming the majority is sodium hyaluronidase. But the origin of uh, um, the sodium hyaluronidase is sheep, uh, and it's highly pure. There's a, it goes to undergo a highly purified process in vitreous, Whereas uh, in uh, Y-Days, the origin is from cow, and it's less, less purified. And the final difference is the absence of a preservative in the vitres, and thimerosal as a, vit- as a preservative in Y-Days. Bottom line is when we tested Y-Days in, rabbit, in animal eyes by injecting fairly low doses, it causes retinal necrosis, whereas in vitres, at doses that are significantly higher than what was used clinically, there's no sign of any toxicity at all inside of, inside of animal eyes. Can I have you describe the design of the study? These were two pivotal phase three trials. The study was conducted all over the world. There were two trials that were dubbed the Vitreous O2 North American, Vitres O2 North American trial, and then there's the O3 study, which was the, dubbed the X North America, meaning outside of the United States, outside of North America, excuse me. In the North American trial, there was an initial run-up period where we initiated the trial, but we were still in debate with the FDA, and we ended up undergoing a modification of the trial after about 80 patients were enrolled. So I'm not, I'm not going to really talk about those, what that was at that point. But the trial in its full force that ended up enrolling about 1,300-plus patients involved randomly assigning people with a dense vitreous hemorrhage that had to be present for at least a month and was dense at entry, meaning so dense you could not make out any retinal details, people were randomly assigned to either a saline injection. A, in the North American study, there were three treatment doses. I forgot that was another difference. The North American study had three different vitres doses. The study outside North America had only two different doses. Um, so the three doses, so again, saline was the control group, then there were three doses in the North American trial of, say, of vitres, rather, 7.5 international units, 55, and 75 international units. In the uh, vitres 03 trial conducted outside of North America, there's again a saline control group, and then the low-dose group was excluded. The European regulatory agencies felt that there was a, unli- there was a low likelihood of any benefit from that group, and so therefore, why expose patients to uh, any you know, risk of participating in a study? And so that only the two higher doses were explored in the, 
European and well the the trial that was done outside of North America, uh, the 55 and 75 IU doses. How was successful treatment defined? How, how do you quantify clearing of vitreous hemorrhage? Well, you're really focusing on a key and difficult element of this. There's never really been a trial evaluating something like this. So we had to create a lot of our own endpoints, and we had to do this in discussion with the FDA, and we had to make significant concessions to the FDA. I should state very clearly at this point that the FDA, um, I'm sorry, that the two trials that were designed, I mean the two replicate studies, did not meet their primary clinical efficacy endpoint. And as a result, the FDA did not approve vitrates for this indication. How, and the, the papers that were published, um, uh, we did something that is allowed scientifically, but, is not, but the FDA doesn't want to see for purposes of their evaluation because their need for two replicate trials. We pooled the data, which is allowed because they are under the same conditions as statistically it's allowed to do so. So we pooled the data from the two trials, and at that point we achieved all the statistically significant endpoints that were agreed to at the FDA, including the need to adjust uh, the p-value for the multiplicity of endpoints and time points and everything else. So once we adjusted everything, the primary efficacy endpoint down to point .008, we still met that criteria, that more stringent criteria. So again, I do want to, cl- to make it clear that this uh, the, did not meet its endpoints, the two studies, as agreed upon with the FDA, and it was not approved for this label indication by the FDA. But again, what the endpoints were, we agreed that vision should be part of it, but we agreed that it should not be the primary efficacy endpoint because these are eyes that came to us full of blood. We had no idea what the underlying macula looked like, so there was a concern that there could be a lot of macular edema or macular ischemia or other sorts of problems, so that even if we were to successfully clear the vitreous hemorrhage, we may not get a concomitant improvement in visual acuity. So that was the, one of the key, that was the key secondary endpoint. And it's a little ironic because we did make that, we did meet that endpoint, even though that was not the primary efficacy endpoint. We had to create our other efficacy endpoints. So the primary efficacy endpoint that was created in combination with the FDA was for the blood to clear sufficiently so that laser or whatever appropriate treatment would be rendered would be able to be performed, and it was performed by the three-month time point. That was the agreed-upon endpoint. What our study showed is that we achieved that endpoint as soon as month one, and in fact, by month three, there was a bit of a degradation of that endpoint because the saline group, which is, again, not a control group that we would have favored. We would have preferred a, a control group to be a sham injection, not an actual saline injection because saline can cause a small amount of a hydrodynamic effect and potentially promote a limited amount of uh, hemorrhage clearance, not enough that we'd ever want to recommend that as a treatment, but enough to blunt the delta between the control group and the experimental groups. Uh, But anyway, um, so that there was a partial blunting of that effect by month three, and that's where we lost our uh, endpoint. The p-value at month three was not not, uh, at the level agreed to with the FDA, 0.05, but it was achieved at an earlier time point, at month one and month two. What were your secondary outcome measures? So that was the prom sorry, that was the primary efficacy endpoint. So and then vision was a secondary, three line improvement of visual acuity was a secondary endpoint. And again, that uh, was achieved in a significant number of people. Finally there were two other secondary endpoints. One was, one was clearance of vitreous hemorrhage, reduction of vitreous hemorrhage density as we dubbed it. Uh, and that where you looked clock hour by clock hour and scored the, the vitreous hemorrhage. Was it a zero, a one, a two, or a three, um, or four? Like you, had to have, you had to be three or four, and we defined all these in the, in the uh, protocol because even those definitions didn't exist. 
So three or four we defined, and you had to be three or four posterior to the equator in all 12 clock hours at enrollment, and um, the reduction of vitreous hydrogen density uh, endpoint to be achieved, you had to drop from three or four down to a zero or one, that is either no or a trivial amount of blood in at least six clock hours. So again, you didn't have to have, you had to have at least clearance of the entire uh, superior 180 degrees um, to, make the, to make that endpoint, the reduction of vitreous hemorrhage density, because we felt that that was um, a minimum amount of the, the amount of vitreous hemorrhage reduction that we would consider A, visually significant, I mean clinically significant, and B, one that would allow us to apply the laser treatment that the patient needed, if again, since most of the patients, but not all the patients in the study were diabetics. What were the etiologies of the vitreous hemorrhages in the study patients? Roughly 75% of the patients had diabetes as their underlying cause, that is proliferative diabetic retinopathy as their underlying cause of um, their uh, diabetic retinopathy. In fact, I can tell you specifically, the proliferative diabetic retinopathy ranged from a 68.5 to 83.3, or about between six, between, roughly 70 to 80% of patients uh, in the various groups had a proliferative diabetic retinopathy as their underlying cause. The next most common was central vein occlusion, then uh, branch vein occlusion, then uh, uh, breakthrough bleed uh, due to exudative macrogeneration. Those were the other causes. By the way, there was one thing that we, one other endpoint, we talked about the primary efficacy endpoint was this needing to clear enough that you could provide treatment, whatever that treatment was, based on the, what the original cause of the hemorrhage was, and perform the treatment needed. Uh, then the se key secondary endpoint uh, was three line percentage of patients with three-line improvement of vision. Then there was this reduction of vitreous hemorrhage density. And then there was this clinical utility. What do we call that thing? It was kind of a clinical assessment of therapeutic, therapeutic utility. And that's where you would, the doctor would look in and say, this eye is cleared enough that I could treat, and that's, you didn't have to do any treatment. You could just say, this is now a clinically relevant endpoint. This is clear, this blood is now cleared well enough for me to treat. And again, these p-values um, were all uh, the adjustments, um, you know, for the primary efficacy endpoint just needed to be reduced to uh, 0.08 level. The others just had to be the 0.025 level. And in fact, we were able to achieve that uh, for all these, uh, for all the endpoints and time points uh, for the secondary endpoints. The primary efficacy endpoint was achieved through months one and two. But again, at month three, even though the p-value was 0.025, that was not viewed as uh, statistically significant based on the reductions necessary based on the multiplicity of time points and endpoints. You've touched on a lot of your results. Can I get you to give um, a more comprehensive overview of the results from your study? Sure. Well, the primary, primary efficacy endpoint, that is the reduction of vitreous hemorrhage such that it cleared enough for you to treat and you applied the treatment necessary, uh, was again achieved by a highly statistically significant percentage of the population um, at the 55 IU dose, which turned out to be the intermediate dose turned out to be the most effective one. It wasn't exactly a clean dose response curve. But if you look at that, a highly statistically significant uh, percentage of, of eyes uh, reached that by month one and month two. And again, there was a slight degradation of that, of that delta between the control group by month three, even though the p-value at month three was still 0.025. When it came to visual acuity, if you looked at uh, the reductions all the way down to 008, which is not required for the secondary endpoints, um, we still achieve those at 55 IU dose at both month one, month two, at month three. So ironically, you know, so we certainly got the visual acuity and then some 
um, with highly statistically significant p-values, that is, what percentage of patients had a spree-line improvement in vision. If one looks at the final two endpoints, that is the you know, actual measuring clock hour by clock hour and seeing if in at least uh, six clock hours they'd had a reduction from a dense, dense hemorrhage to a trivial residual hemorrhage, again, at the 55 IU dose, it was highly statistically significant by the month one time point, and it continued through month three, well below the point oh oh eight. Uh, which is not even required, again, for the secondary endpoints. And finally, this more general clinical one, you look in and say, you know what, I can see what's going on here. I could treat right now if I wanted to. That was also highly significant, uh, P less than 0.001 at by month one, by month two, and by month three. So we really had very statistically significant clinical uh, achievement of clinically relevant endpoints. Again, vision, clearance of hemorrhage, ability to see well enough to treat. And what the, again, the only reason that we sort of lost a little of a bit of our statistical p-value was that the saving group um, on, the group on the primary standpoint did just a little bit better than we anticipated that we lost our, our statistical significance. Short of that, though, this would have been, I think, a, a product that would have been improved for the, approved for this label indication. Um, it is a drug that you can see that there are some eyes that you don't see much clearing. There are other eyes that you inject and you say, wow, this blood is gone. It's really, there is plenty of wow effect in this efficacy-wise. Again, not in every eye, but in enough eyes. I think once people start trying this, if they're able to do so, and again, the whole question is who's going to pay for it, et cetera, but assume people were using it if and when that that is an option, I think uh, people will very rapidly see that a very significant percentage of their patients will develop a, a, a clinically relevant amount of clearing of blood, enough to treat the underlying disease. Clearly, the duration of the effect of hyaluronidase is many months, but what is the duration of action? Right. Now, that's a very good point, too, because all I was emphasizing months one, month two, month three, what we really care about is what is happening at month one. Because as far as I'm concerned, ultimately, as a clinical, you know, vitreoretinal surgeon, if the blood's not, you know, if I decide that I'm going to wait one month for this to clear after I inject, when it's, if it's not clear at one, month one, I'm probably going to want to go in there pretty soon and, and, and do surgery. So that the end point in my mind that is most relevant is how well does it work at month one? Does it clear in enough eyes that I'm willing to use it? Um, and so the duration of effect of it is actually the actual half-life of the drug is relatively short inside the eye. It's an enzyme. So, it, so the actual drug is broken down fairly rapidly. Then there's this cascade of events that it initiates that plays itself out such that a very significant percentage of the blood is gone uh, by month one. There's still progressive further clearing of blood over the next uh, two months, but a big chunk of it, over half of it, occurs in the first month. I've, I have a question on the control group, and you've touched on this several times. Injecting saline may be a control in the sense that it isolates the effect of the medication from the effect of the injection. But saline injection isn't really a therapeutic control. I, no one gives saline injections to treat vitreous hemorrhage. What I'm saying is, is that the, the saline injection is really more of a second experimental group than a, a, a control group. I understand your point, and we had a lot of debates with this with regards to this issue with the FDA. The FDA's contention is that a saline injection is an appropriate scientific control. I would agree with your statement that it is that you use the term it's not an appropriate clinical control, and I agree with both of those. The saline was meant to be as a scientific control so we could isolate the, the effect of the enzymatic action of the drug 
compared to any hydrodynamic effect of a neutral agent like saline. But again, as you point out, we don't inject saline in ice, so the true control would have been how well did this drug fare, this process, this injection of a pharmacoactive agent into the eye, how well did it fare compared to, for example, a sham injection where the vitreous is not, the eye is not penetrated, there's no injection into the vitreous. Um, the FDA in this, you know, has a, uh, you know, has, I, I respect their process. It is, it is an intelligent process. We had a uh, heated, let's say, we had a, uh, an enthusiastic debate over this issue, but the compromise that was achieved with the FDA was that, in fact, the control group would be a saline injection. And, in fact, certain sites refused to participate in the trial as a result because they felt that it was so likely to be of any benefit to the patient and they were concerned about the possibility of harm to the patient that, in fact, we lost some of our sites that would have participated in the trial because they did not, they vehemently disagreed with the notion of a saline placebo injection into the eye. I have some questions dealing now with the safety profile. To some extent, uveitis was dose-dependent. Can I get you to talk about that? Yes, we don't. We know that it elaborates. If there's a phagocytic response. There's inflammation that is induced by this uh, process. It seems to be correlated to the enzymatic effect, though not obviously so. We did see inflammation in all groups, but it was clearly if you looked at if you got rid of the mild cellular response, meaning you know if you did if there is any cells in the anterior chamber were documented, and there was some uh, cells in the anterior chamber after saline injection, I suspect that there are more dispersion of red blood cells. So if we got rid of the mild group and looked at the more, uh, the, anything except for the minimal amount of uh, uh, RBCs, there was a clear dose response in association with this, though there was not necessarily as tight a dose response of clearance of the blood. So while there seems to be an association between inflammation and clearance of the blood, we cannot at the current time say that the inflammation is uh, a necessary part for clearance of blood to occur. But again, all the cases of inflammation that we saw were uh, benign in that they all responded to therapy or just observation. Some doctors chose to observe them. They all resolved. They were no, there was no sequela. There was never any um, uh, uh, appearance of this being a, a significant adverse event. It was always uh, viewed as a benign event, including those hypopia uh, that occurred. Um, and it can be part of it. The training is for people to not react to those. Again, no case of endophthalmitis associated with the use of this drug. Do you think that there was a causal connection between the retinal detachments that you observed and hyaluronidase? I think that's a very good question. From a safety issue, in my mind, the first and foremost biggest concern is really getting a handle on the uveitis because you see it and it seems to be associated with the drug use, etc. Fortunately, it was not deleterious. Fortunately, there was no cases of endophthalmitis, so it helps us understand not to overreact to uveitis. So that was first and foremost. Then the other two or potentially other three safety issues that one would be theoretically concerned about if you're injecting something into an eye full of blood or injecting anything into any eye is what's the risk of retinal attachment, what's the risk of cataract, what's the risk of glaucoma. In cataract and glaucoma, we didn't see anything. We did see something funny in the 7.5 IU dose group, which is one that had the smallest number of patients in it because they were only injected, only in one of the two studies did we have that dose group. And there's some weird statistical anomalies there that don't make sense. Like, I forget, one of the subsets of cataracts was known to be bigger in the 7.5 IU group, but not in the others, and a transient rise in pressure in the 7.5 IU group that was not seen in any of the other groups. 
um, if one looks at the, the dose of the groups that got higher doses and that had you know, a large number of patients enrolled, we did not see any difference between groups in either cataract and glaucoma. So those things were gone. Then there was, in my mind, uh, something that I would concern, be, be potentially concerned with, that is injecting a needle of anything, full of anything, uh, into an eye full of blood. And the concern I would have in that situation is how likely am I to cause an acute retinal detachment? Because that would be, you know, you squirt a fluid into the eye, the hydrodynamic dynamic effect in an eye full of blood. Who knows what's going to happen there? You can't really watch what's going on. In fact, uh, so that the, the ones that I focused on, I made a point of cataloging every single retinal detachment in the study, but specifically, um, I paid particular attention to regnetogenous retinal detachments that occurred within one month of the injection. And in fact, um, there were only three of those. Out of 1,344 injections, only three acute retinal detachments within 30 days of the injection. So I think, that's, I think that would satisfy anybody in terms of safety. Now, there were plenty of other retinal detachments if you looked at all the types, traction detachments, et cetera. Of course, these are diabetics, and, and the more longer you wait with an eye full of blood, the more, the more likely they are to, to develop traction detachments. And, but there was no, for, and another important thing is that there was no difference between groups whatsoever, regardless whether in the saline or any of the treatment groups, there was no statistical incidence between groups uh, in terms of any of the types of retinal detachments at all. But again, the key message is the, one, the retinal attachments that I would be worried about as being related, causally related to the injection and or the drug would be acute regnetogenous retinal detachments, and there's only three in the entire study out of 1,344 injections. There have been other vitriolytic agents. How does hyaluronidase compare with them? Well, it's hard to compare them. Others have sort of surfaced and have gone through partially through the development. None of them has gone as far as uh, vitrase. The one that is currently furthest along in development is plasmin. Now, plasmin has two different, well, actually now three different formulations. One is autologous, autologous plasmin that's been uh, promoted primarily by uh, doctors Mike Tracy and George Williams uh, out of the prominent vitreoretinal surgical group in Royal Oak, Michigan. And that's where a, they've developed a cartridge where you can extract, uh, where you, you take blood from the antecubital fossa of a patient and through this cartridge filtering process, you're able to extract autologous plasmin, and that can be injected into the eye. They have not used it necessarily for the same indications. They've used it for, I think, very interesting indications for, uh, as a surgical adjuvant, for example, and other things. And I know that they're trying to develop that further. In the process of doing so, they've partnered. In fact, I think, I'm not sure the exact relationship, but I believe they've either sold or have partnered with uh, uh, a company called Thrombogenics, so that they're all participants in, and what Thrombogenics has is microplasmin, which is a genetically engineered uh, formulation of plasmin. And so they're somehow partners. I don't know exact business relationship, but I know that it's all part of one company now. The autologous plasmin part and the uh, microplasmin component, those two separate products that are related to each other are now under the one wing of a small company called Thrombogenics. And I know that further trials are, are underway right now, primarily in Europe, looking more at the microplasmin. So that's in development. Additionally, Bausch & Loam has, I think, acquired rights to a product of pooled plasmin that I think might have been proprietary to Bayer at one point, and they brought, bought the rights to it. And I know that they're planning and developing some trials, all looking at plasmin um, as, an enzo, uh, as a vitrolytic uh, enzymatic agent. Not so much looking at clearance of vitreous hemorrhage, but looking at it in other regards, surgical adjuvant, uh, other sorts of things um, as well. 
Additionally, historically, chondroitinase had been partially developed. It was proprietary to Stortz. I know that Greg Hageman had published some papers on it some years ago, but I don't think it's any further in development. And the final agent that had been looked at is dyspase, but dyspase was found to be fairly toxic to the retina. There's, I think, cases of hemorrhage caused by dyspase, and I think that's been pretty much abandoned without much development. So as far as I can tell, the only real other enzymatic – oh, actually, I forgot. There's another agent that is not an enzyme but works on the vitreous to help dissolve it, and that's from a small company called Vitreo Retinal Technologies, and their product is called Vitreosolve, which is a urea-based product. Again, not an enzyme, but, and it's not clear what its mechanism of action is, but they have some interesting data looking at what it can do to liquefy the vitreous. So I think that's the full portfolio of, uh, of products out there that either are in development or have fallen by the wayside with regards to uh, looking at either enzymes or on agents that intervene or, or modify the vitreous, I think maybe the best way to generalize this. Barry, what do you do in your own practice when you see someone with a vitreous hemorrhage? When we see vitreous hemorrhage, the dilemma right now is the payment of, of, uh, of the product because I don't feel comfortable charging patients for this. And I've been able to get a few limited uh, amount of, uh, based on my request, I've asked for a few samples from the company, so I've used it a few times. But currently, I still follow the, the, the old management process, but I would love to have vitres in my hands. I'd love to be able to use it and know that I could, uh, you know, that it wouldn't be an out-of-pocket expense to the patients, that I could uh, use it and bill an insurance company if possible for that and uh, use it as part of my armamentarium because I think I'll reduce the need to go to surgery. I think that I'd be able to get laser spots in a lot sooner. I think I'd get stabilization of the disease a lot sooner. From my standpoint, I'm you know, quite enthused about the possibility of using this agent. I will say that I was the lead investigator for this trial, and I was a consultant to the company. And uh, so you know, with all those caveats, um, I watched it work in my hands, and I would love to be able to use it on a regular basis. Until, though, the payer issue is more clearly defined and resolved, uh, I've, I've been limiting my use to it. I should also mention that there may be several other interesting indications for vitres. We've already touched on surgical adjuvant on those times when you use it and it doesn't work, it doesn't clear the blood. It still, I think, makes the surgery a lot easier. Additionally, um, we did a study in, uh, a couple of years ago that we presented at Arvo and at other meetings and never got the paper accepted though I'm working on the revisions now, uh, where we were able to induce a posterior vitreous separation and showed that we could inhibit progression of diabetic retinopathy to the proliferative form. So that would be a potentially interesting indication. And finally, there's this tip of the iceberg that's not really been looked at carefully, though there hopefully will be a study going forward in the near future, which is looking at floaters. Could, these, could vitres eliminate floaters? That would be terrifically exciting. So I think between the vitreous hemorrhage indication, the posterior vitreous detachment inducing indication for inhibition of progression of diabetic, prolific diabetic retinopathy, and the floater indication, I mean, those are all fascinating potential indications this product may have. Barry, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Charles. Nice talking to you. Baruch Cooperman is professor and chief of the retina service at the University of California, Irvine. His paper, Safety Results of Two Phase Three Trials of an Intravitreous Injection of Highly Purified Ovine Hyaluronidase, Vitres for the management of vitreous hemorrhage appears in the October 2005 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Last month, I podcast a one-minute video promo. It's still available through iTunes. As seen from here, 
the first podcast for physicians, the first podcast to offer CME credit, is about to make a great leap forward. As seen from here is supplementing the existing audio podcast with a video podcast. I have some great surgical programs lined up, and we'll start with bimanual laser phacolysis. Those of you lucky enough to have the new video iPod will find the clarity of the programs to be excellent. Those of you who don't can still watch the video programs on iTunes version 6 and above and on QuickTime, both of which are free downloads. I also invite you, you personally, to submit surgical video that you feel is illustrative of a particular surgical point. Let's share. Ask questions of Dr. Cooperman or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype J. Young, MD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.